0: Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered.
1: It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering these new faces of Boston.
2: You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the Radar
3: means ahead of the curve.
0: It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, the Cape's newest drug problem is marijuana poisoning in dogs. Maine's first female governor has a woman-full cabinet and a city-sponsored free lunch for Providence kids on snow days. It's our regional news roundtable. Later in the show, we tip our glasses to wines produced by women in celebration of Women's History Month. And it's Coco van, onion soup, and frites Everybody's craving French food again. Our food and wine connoisseurs are serving us the biggest food crazes so far in 2019. But first, joining me from the studios of WNHN, Arnie Arneson, host of The Attitude with Arnie Arneson. Welcome, Arnie. It's a pleasure. And from Hippo Studios in Rhode Island, Philip Isle, Providence-based freelance journalist. Hello, Philip. Hi, Callie. And from the offices of the Cape Cod Times, Paul Pronovo, executive editor of the Cape Cod Times. Hello again, Paul.
2: Hello, Callie.
0: Paul, I'm going to start with you because uh, the dogs, the stone dogs, which sounds like it would be funny, but it actually isn't, on the Cape is a real problem. Tell us about it.
2: Yeah, of course, we all know that um, marijuana is now legalized in Massachusetts, um, uh, recreational marijuana. That is, um, medical marijuana had been uh, out there for a while, uh, but you know there were quite uh, a few restrictions on medical marijuana. Now, with recreational, pretty much you can uh, be uh, smoking in public, and what that means is the disposal of uh, marijuana cigarettes, edibles things of that nature, are on the ground. And anyone who owns a dog or has owned a dog knows that uh, they're going to sniff out and eat everything that they find that appears to be uh, food-related. And uh, and that's a situation we're seeing here on the Cape, that uh, a number of dogs uh, have been showing up at uh, veterinarians uh, on Cape Cod and the islands um, having been uh, uh, basically poisoned. Uh, you know, they are, as you said, they're they're stoned. Um but, but it's it's like,, uh, if you had the most powerful drug possible, because you know, what they're eating are things that are. You know, geared toward people who weigh 150, maybe 200 pounds, and a 15-pound dog simply can't take the 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 uh, weight of that THC. So, um, it's an issue, and and vets uh, are seeing really big numbers uh, of dogs affected by this. So they're coming out and they're warning um, their uh, clientele uh, to to keep an eye on their dogs, and uh, and uh, really this story that we published last Sunday has been echoing for uh, a week now where where people are first of all they say didn't know this was a problem and you know dog lovers are you know reacting saying that they uh, you know really need to keep a close eye on it but then people who uh, are pot supporters are also reacting saying maybe there's uh, too much reaction here and people need to, to simmer down so uh, it's been an interesting uh, it's been an interesting week
0: well i might have uh, thought You know, agreed with the the pot people on on first go round until I I read that uh, note in your piece from the medical director of the Cape Cod veterinary specialist, Dr. Louisa Rahili. And she said it's a rare day that they don't have a dog coming in. So that really speaks to how widespread the problem is. And I thought it was a microcosm of what could be happening all across the state.
2: Without a question, uh, I think it probably it has to be happening all across the state. We just happen to, you know, have veterinarians tell us about it, and um, that is pretty astounding. That you know, it's a rare day that a dog doesn't come in with that condition. Um, some vets have said, "Oh, we've seen five uh, dogs in a very short amount of time," and uh, so it's definitely a problem. And it's you know, it seems to be something that uh, awareness is is the key. Awareness to try to keep your dogs. Of course, dog owners do this anyway try to keep their dogs away from something they shouldn't get near. Um, and, but moreover, if, if your dog exhibits symptoms of perhaps being uh, stoned, uh, to go get medical treatment right away, it's very important that they,
0: that they get handled. Um, Philip and Arnie, I'm not sure you all are experiencing this as an issue. Have you heard this in your communities? Uh Uh-oh. We don't have
4: the legalization of marijuana. That's what I thought. Don't don't let anyone in New Hampshire know this. This will be another reason why we will not (laughs) embrace what the rest of the New England states have. But can I just share something with you? Because this story is going to actually have a parallel for me. And you're going to be not surprised, but maybe this is an enlightening opportunity. This isn't only about dogs. This is about children. Sure. And one of the, the points that you are making, Paul, is you know how how these dogs only weigh 15 pounds or 25 pounds or 40 pounds. And this this cookie was you know envisioned for someone weighing 110, 150. Well, you have children, too, who are going to see cookies. And they're going to be three years old and two years old. And they're going to pick up a cookie not realizing that this cookie is laced with marijuana. So I want people to be on notice that this is not only about pets. It's about your children. And I think this is really important because these things package as if— if they were, you know, something that's user-friendly that a child might want. And the reason I even bring this up, Callie, is because many, many years ago, that I had a concern about children riding in the back of open pickup trucks. So I wrote a piece of legislation forbidding children to ride in the back of open pick, pickup trucks. This is 1980, everyone. This is how old I am. And what did they do? Because we are Live Free or Die in New Hampshire, we amended it. We took out children, and we said you could not have your dogs riding in the back of pickup trucks. <laughs> wow. So, (laughs) So, I mean, we preferred to protect animals before we protected children, but I wanted people to understand that as I was talking about kids, look where my state went. They saw pets as a concern. Well, I'm going to go on the reverse. We're talking about pets and pot. Please use this as an educational opportunity to be aware this is a concern, too, for your children. Well, it's certainly
0: something that uh, Colorado dealt with, uh, Philip, um, and, you know, struggled around and may still be struggling around because they were one of the first states uh, with recreational use of marijuana. But uh, uh, in Rhode Island, any concerns about this?
5: Um, This hasn't made the debate yet. Um, We have yet to legalize marijuana recreationally here in the state, although notably— Governor Gina Raimondo just kind of reversed course uh, or at least stepped away from a neutral standpoint and said that she supports the legalization of recreational marijuana in the state, uh, which she included uh, details about that in her latest budget proposal. Um, which may change the debate here. There still does not seem to be a fast track for legalization. Um, but from my perspective, I'm a pro-marijuana legalization guy. I'm also a pro-dog guy. I don't think this is a reason not to legalize marijuana. I just think it's a reason to have a conversation yeah. about what this new exactly. world order means. And it means for the sake right. of the kids, for the sake of the dogs, uh, being more responsible with, you know, for the folks who do Use this stuff, just, you know, being responsible about how you package it, how you throw it away, where you store it. And interestingly, uh, I just want to echo a PSA from that uh, veterinarian on the Cape, Dr. Louisa Rahili, who mentioned both kids and dogs. Uh, She said, it's a drug, she said, just because it's legal doesn't mean it's not dangerous. Lock it up and keep it in a place they, the dogs, can't get at it just like Mm. you do for a kid.
0: Exactly. Well, that's wise advice. Um, Philip, while you're talking, let us uh, let me switch subjects and say that I hope we've seen the last of snow around here. <laughs> but in case we haven't, um, I was interested in this program that Providence Mayor uh, Jorge Eloriza kicked off, um, which I thought was a thoughtful one. I don't think people think about it. And it has to do with feeding uh, the city's children when uh, there is a snow day because they're not they are not able to get the free lunches at school.
5: Yes. So uh, on a recent Monday, there was a a major snowstorm in Rhode Island, like much of New England, and Providence City schools were shut down. Uh, But later in the day, four city recreation centers were open from 3 to 9 p.m. so kids could come and run around and also receive a free meal. Uh, Apparently, according to the mayor, this is an expansion. Uh, it's a new initiative, the Snow Day initiative, but it's an expansion of an existing program that provides meals to city kids at rec centers during the week. Um, and according to WPRI, the cost of the meals was reimbursed through the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Child and Adult Care Food Program. Uh, and all Providence residents under age, age 18 are eligible to receive a meal What I thought was interesting from this article, aside from the policy itself, was just a window into this issue of kind of food scarcity and poverty in Providence. Just some quick stats uh, from that article uh, from WPRI. Nearly 90 percent of Providence school kids are eligible for free or reduced lunch, according to the mayor. Uh, And according to the advocacy organization RI Kids Count, more than 15,000 Providence children under age 18 were living in poverty between 2012 and 2016. And nearly 6,800 children were believed to be living in extreme poverty, which means a family of four with uh, two children earns less than $12,000 a year. So for me, this article was a window into that. Interestingly, uh, an interesting note from the mayor who grew up in Providence, of course, um, he told PRI that uh, he and his sister used to spend those snow days playing video games, drinking soda, and eating Cheetos. And he wanted to provide students uh, a place to burn calories and have healthier meals. And the quote that caught my ear was Any kid can come in and get a free meal, according to the mayor. And just one more detail apparently, 300 meals were prepared uh, for that snow day on Monday. I don't know how many ended up being used, but that was the number they were it. prepared for.
0: Um, Is this happening in um, New Hampshire? Um, no, but
4: I'm sending the story around. I'm just telling you it was—it's a fabulous story. And and the other reason why I want to even make a comment here is uh, I on occasion cook at the Friendly Kitchen, which serves meals to people who are hungry. Okay, and I want to remind people we don't ask people what their income is. We don't ask them why they're at the Friendly Kitchen. We just serve a meal. And if there's a snowstorm, we actually have more people coming in to eat at the Friendly Kitchen. So if that's true with adults, it's obviously true with children. And the idea that you don't ask them whether they you know can afford a meal or not is absolutely crucial. You put the meal out, kids come. Trust me, 98.9% are coming because they're hungry and because there's no one at home to make them the meal. I think it's a fabulous idea. Snow should not be an excuse for not providing kids with food.
0: Yeah, I know, um, uh, Paul, that in Boston there are a few independent uh, organizations, uh, some uh, small food banks and pantries that are responding in this way because I've heard about it, but I, I don't I don't know of anything that's city-sponsored. And I, is there anything down the way on the Cape?
2: Yeah, I, I agree. I don't think that there's anything city-sponsored uh, along these lines, although, as you mentioned, there are private uh, food pantries that uh, are doing the service. Um, similarly, on the Cape, there's not a program like this. Um, but but if you talk to the folks at the service centers and the food pantries they will tell you they've been busier than yes. ever over the past exactly. couple of years, exactly. and that the profile of the people who are coming in are not what you would think. Um, right. You know, certainly, uh, you know, the people who are at the poverty line. Uh, you know, are people who are working, Mm -hmm. working hard, sometimes working multiple jobs, and yet they just can't make ends meet. So uh, they're making hard choices. Do I heat the house or do I feed the family? And we see this uh, on the Cape in in huge ways. Of course, we have a seasonal economy, so uh, unemployment is very high at this time of the year. Um, So I, I think a program like this is a great idea, not only because it's providing a good and nutritious meal for kids because, let's face it, they'll find something to eat, but it might not be something that they probably should eat. So it's a, it's a good meal to have. But moreover, it's giving them a base, a place to be on days where maybe they would be drifting otherwise. Uh, if the parents are working, they're home alone. This gives them something that grounds them in in a program, and I think that's that's really smart. We know that uh, certainly schools and, and really... Uh, governments in general are having to play larger and larger roles in, in sort of social services. And I think the mayor here was uh, very smart and innovative to to do something like this.
0: Yes, and I just want to underscore that what I meant by I wasn't certain that there was a city-sponsored program, there are many, many, to your point, Paul, um, I've had many conversations with uh, pantries and and larger food banks who are, you know, uh, as you say, um, oversubscribed with the number of people who are working standing in those lines because they can't make ends meet. So I want to make sure that we, you know, give support to the work that they're doing and the volunteers who are part of that, and I myself volunteer at the Pine Street Inn here, which is a shelter for um, um, homeless women. so i I've seen it. I know that. but what I meant was I hadn't I thought that the uniqueness of this was just specifically geared toward those kids out of school, which is something I really hadn't thought about. And I know that there are some food banks that are paying you know, small efforts here have paid attention to that. Um I'm not suggesting that's what the city should do. I just think it's um, for for the mayor in um, Rhode Island and Providence that it's uh, um that was a lot of insight uh, to do that. so, you know, maybe he'll have some data to share with everybody at the end of this about how many kids were able to participate in all of that. And that'll help other people think about whether this is a program they would like to also take up because um, we are in one the snow interesting plane. T- <laughs> yeah.
2: Go ahead. One other interesting twist to this when you think about it, you know, what 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 happens uh, when uh, we have a big snowstorm? Uh, you know, the schools are shut down, workplaces are shut down and. The government is shut down, except right. for very essential services. So I think it's interesting that the mayor here is is carving is saying, "Here's an essential service. We're going to mm-hmm. make sure we bring in food preparers <laughs> and and do that, uh, because that exactly. wouldn't really be what you th- you know normally. The schools are shut. Their cafeterias are shut, etc. Um, this is addressing that as well, and I think that's really good.
0: Mm. All right. So moving on to uh, New Hampshire, and this back and forth. Um, discussion on the floor of the of the legislature there, Arnie, about uh, red flag laws, which are really debated all across the country, not just in, in New Hampshire, but some of the male New Hampshire lawmakers uh, decided that they would wear pearls because one of the advocates for this uh, legislation or, or the name of it is Moms Demand. Um, and I'm going to have you give me just a brief overview of, of what was happening there. And then I have a clip from of one of the state representatives, a woman who responded to, to their action of wearing what they were Okay, wearing. so <laughs> okay. Let, let's
4: set the stage. So a number of states around the country have passed and a number of states are looking at what are called red flag laws. And red flag laws basically say that if a family is concerned or the cops are concerned about the behavior of uh, of certain individuals who have access to guns, you can remove those guns from that individual in order to protect them, in order to protect their neighbors, their family, or whatever. But obviously it uh, it is it is unique, it is time-specific, it is to erratic behavior, uh, and frankly, even suicide behavior. And you know these people have access to guns. So uh, there's a group called Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense. Uh, They started after Sandy Hook. They've introduced this legislation in a number of states where it's already passed. Uh, And in the state of New Hampshire, it was also introduced. Well, there is this incredibly interesting conservative reactionary activist named Kimberly Morin, who is with something that uh, has been created in support of guns and Second Amendment issues uh, on every single level. There is no sort of limit on what you can do with your gun. And she organized something. Called the Women's Defense League. One of the things that they sport, uh, that they wear at the Women's Defense League, are white pearls because they are clutching their pearls because they understand the importance of the Second Amendment. This was a hearing on the red flag laws. It was not on the floor of the legislature. And as Republican members were walking in, Kimberly was offering them the opportunity at their committee table to wear pearls. So instead of walking into your committee to be a legislator and to sort of listen to the testimony on both sides, you kind of understood that you were sending a message to the group known as Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense that you probably weren't going to be sympathetic about the red flag laws because you are sporting these white pearls. Well, people went berserk uh, because they just felt that this was just outrageous. It was kind of questionable behavior. Uh, People were even suggesting, oh, I thought it was because of Mardi Gras that they were handing me the white pearls. I mean, give me a shovel. Uh, But if nothing else, this is what happens when you talk about the Second Amendment. This is what happens when you come into a state, especially the state of New Hampshire, That can't imagine any kind of limitation on any kind of gun. I'm waiting for them to embrace what I call PDAs, personal atomic devices, or PADs. Uh, But this was unfortunate. It went wild. It showed up in The New York Times. And depending on which newspaper or agenda you were listening to, you got a very different take on this. Those legislators knew why they were being given the pearls. They knew it wasn't about Mardi Gras. They were sending a message that they were basically going to not listen to these women, and they wanted them to know that before they even began to testify.
0: So this is Democratic New Hampshire State Representative Deborah Altshiller. She's reacting to the male lawmakers display of wearing pearls during a hearing on gun control legislation.
1: Those members of the committee are supposed to be listening with open hearts and open minds. And when you're wearing a symbol that's a nonverbal cue that I'm not listening to you and I don't care about what you say, and I'm putting myself in solidarity with a group who's mocking you, I find that incredibly disrespectful and troubling.
0: Well, there you have there it. You go. <laughs> and I'm sure that's I mean, that's these are conversations that are ongoing in every state, by the way. So, uh, uh, some some states have passed it but but these are very intense and emotional uh, arguments i guess everybody who's involved in them would just like feel like to feel as though they're not being mocked for whatever position they have can, can i say well, something well i just want to remind yes, everyone
4: pe- mm-hmm.
5: oh okay,
4: go well, ahead just, just add... everyone, it...
5: oh yeah go, go ahead Phil, you go
4: It's passed in nine states. It's been signed by both Republican governors and Democratic governors. So I just want people to know that if you're looking at this, this is not a knee-jerk Democratic response. Take a look at the states that have passed it and understand they have governors of both persuasions. So this should not be a partisan issue. This should be a life-saving issue.
5: All right. Philip. I was just going to say it's a shame that lost in all this is the testimony itself. And um, I read an AP report about that testimony. And one mother's words caught my eye, and this is from the AP article. In testimony she called personal, painful, and frankly stigmatizing, Margaret Tilton of Exeter described her son, George, who died at age 23 in 2017. An exuberant child and generous young man, he struggled with depression from a young age and bought a handgun in 2016, she said. That time, people, police were able to persuade him to surrender the gun, but he bought another one in 2017 and used it three weeks later. Quote, my family and I will carry this grief for the rest of our lives. There can be no meaning to George's senseless death unless we create meaning. We know there are better tools out there. We ask you to give us access to them. Tools meaning laws. So I think one of the unfortunate things about this whole brouhaha, again, is that it drowns out, perhaps intentionally, uh, the testimony of people like Margaret Tilton.
0: Right. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm here with WNHN's Arnie Arneson, freelance journalist Philip Isle, and Paul Pronovo of the Cape Cod Times. We're discussing the New England regional stories you need to know. And, Paul, I want to turn over to you, if I may, I'm switching topics, and talk about the Aquina Bingo Hall, that uh, construction is now underway. This had been discussed for some time. I actually thought it had kind of sort of gone away. But now uh, construction is on, due to open later in this year, and uh, there's a little bit of tension still.
2: There is a little bit of tension, and, uh, and let's just, first of all, put this into a context. Um, we've, we've talked about um, on your program, Callie, many times about the Mashpee Wampanoag and their efforts to build a, a full-size casino um, in, in the southeast uh, part of Massachusetts. That has been stalled. There have been lawsuits, uh, fights over land. The tribe is still trying to secure uh, basically a federal recognition and so that has been ongoing and a bloody battle for many, many years. Um, separately, uh, on, on the island of Martha's Vineyard, the tribe of Aquinnah has been, I won't say quietly, but, but somewhat quietly moving along with plans to build not a full-sized uh, casino, but, but what is generally called a bingo hall. Uh, This would be a 10,000 square foot uh, gaming facility. Um, I would call it probably casino light Mm. uh, because they would have uh, 250 electronic gaming machines. Um, You think bingo and you think, you know, a church basement and your grandmother uh, with her wand. Uh, Well, that's not what this is at all. This is really um, uh, a junior casino. Uh, They would have a beer and a wine bar, they would have outdoor seating, um, a mobile uh, food vendor area, and this would all be done. On the tribes uh, uh, tribal land which is out in in uh, the town of uh, aquinna, which if people are familiar with Martha's Vineyard is one of the outermost spots it takes a, a bit of time to get uh, get there uh, through fairly narrow, winding roads, Um, and that's where uh, some town officials are having concerns because they believe this is going to be hugely popular, and they want to be sure that the tribe uh, works with them to try to come up with the right way to do it because there'll be a huge impact to um, uh, town services, they believe, uh, certainly road infrastructure, parking, um, traffic. Uh, They think this is going to be a huge magnet, so they want to work with the tribe. Meanwhile, the tribe says... Uh, well, we'll work with you, but we're not going through any more regulatory process. We have a right to do this, uh, and they do. So uh, it's going to be very interesting. As you said, there is tension, and yet they're basically breaking ground and hoping to be up uh, within six months uh, uh, of construction. So um, it's moving ahead, and, uh, you know, something the Mashpee couldn't get done, the Aquinnah R.
0: Well, and... uh... I I am I'm just sort of distraught by it because I worry about uh, just what's you know, what 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 the impact will be on. It's a beautiful part of the island. Uh, I'm told it's quite remote, but I'm interested in uh, your response. um, uh, Arnie and and Phil, um, because there are some who are saying, well, nobody's going to take the time and effort to go to this hard to reach place to gamble. And I, I disagree.
4: Well, I guess I have a question. What's the difference between a bingo hall and a casino? Again, I mean, I want I'm trying to
0: figure. Out, so only describe, bingo I mean, in have a bingo to... hall. No other. No, table no games. tables. No tables. Um, I assume no slots. So, machines, what are the then? machines?
4: So, yeah. So, what are the machines now? I mean, I'm just trying to figure out how this is not considered a casino, and does this have to go through all the sort of other regulatory gaming issues when you're talking casinos? So, this is a way for them to sort of thread the needle, but sort of, but everybody kind of knows, wink and nod that as you pointed out, it's casino light. I mean, this is part of the frustration. One of the reasons you worry about a casino are things like access, are things like fire, are things like police. So, this is a way of sort of skirting all those really, I think, health and safety issues by not calling it that, but yet putting the same sort of burdens as a result.
0: Well, I, I think in fairness, it doesn't matter what you call it, even if they put a small right. casino, meaning that every they had tables and everything just fitting into this 10,000 square foot facility, the issues that the town is concerned yeah, about exactly. really are the same. I'm, I'm it's really not about, about. What they're, that they're trying to call it a bingo hall and get away with something. Um, it's always been a bingo, named a bingo hall. I always referred to it as a casino, which was wrong. But um, either way, the impact outside of the facility is what people are concerned about.
5: I, I think what's interesting, you know, w- without wading into whether I'm pro or anti-gambling, there, there's some kind of quiet but significant culture shift happening in, in New England where all of a sudden you're never very far these days from an established gambling uh, location. I mean, so we have Foxwoods and exactly. Mohegan Sun in Connecticut, of course, those have been there for a while. Uh, last August, a major casino opened in Springfield, Massachusetts. We have another casino that's apparently about to open in Boston uh, in this summer, I believe. We have a new casino and hotel in Tiverton, Rhode Island, which would be is the second casino in Rhode Island now, given uh, the one that already exists in Lincoln that just opened last September. And here you have more expansion um, on Martha's Vineyard. I just think it's interesting and noteworthy that, you know, very quietly we've gone in a span of a few decades from an area where you really had to travel a long way to get to a place where, where gambling was legal to now you don't have to go very far at all.
0: Now, I think that's an excellent point. And I, I also have to say that uh, among those of us who uh, spend a great deal of time on the island, um, where I am now in Boston, where you are um, in New Hampshire and, and where mm-hmm. Paul is, every, all the rest of that is considered America it's... Being on the island is considered a very special place, so mm. you, what people don't want to have happen, and that's the reason why you don't find chain stores there and some other stuff that you would find easily here, is that you don't want it to turn into America. And you know, this kind of facility reminds you that this is this is what comes from America, this kind of facility. <laughs> and, uh, well, this is my viewpoint anyway about it. So, But, uh, but you know
4: what, what Phil is pointing out, though, <laughs> there are so many of them now that we didn't have, you know, 15, 25 years ago. Well, now we have the empirical data of the impact of these facilities. Right. We understand the traffic impact, we understand the police impact, the fire impact. So I think that not only have we learned from this, but it does raise a lot of issues that are very legitimate for people on the Cape about this bingo facility, because this is not unique. They can't say, well, we don't know, because you can say sure as hell you know. Because take a look at what's happened all over the rest of America, as you say.
0: they They're not saying they don't know. They're the the, the tribe is saying Uh is not not responding to that at all. They're saying we have a right to build it. The town is Mm -hmm. saying we know and we're concerned, but they don't have a right to stop it. So that therein lies the tension. So it'll be it'll be very interesting to see.
2: And I would just add Mm -hmm. one last thing that the tribe, you know, has been a good neighbor for a long time in in the in that community. They do have land uh and they do have rights. Mm -hmm. So uh doing this is not anything that isn't isn't done. Um, commercially, in all sorts of places, even even near you, Phil. I think there are, there's probably a closer um, example to what uh, what this would be in sort of the the Plainview area. Right. Um, so you know, so they have a right to do this. And while certainly you can imagine summer being um, a t- terrible time, because uh, of course the population doubles and triples on Martha's Vineyard in the summer months, but those shoulder seasons and and this time of the year, for example. If people were then, you know, filling up bed and breakfasts, coming to some of the inns, renting a cottage, an off-season cottage, and then going to the casino, it became a draw, that could be possibly a good thing ultimately in these so-called shoulder seasons. I know the uh, the Striper and Bluefish tournament that runs, I believe, sort of September into October on Martha's Vineyard uh, brings thousands and thousands of people who are there just for that purpose, and and perhaps this would have the same thing, but again the uh, f- officials, town officials in Aquina, are raising uh, concerns, and, and the tribe signals that they're going to work with them, but they're not going to seek their approval.
0: Yeah, if I could put a button on this, my read on it is that the tribe is like, don't be uh, patriarchal toward us <laughs> in yeah. your approach to mm-hmm. how we, you know, talk about it. Good point. And there, there's a, g- a great deal of resentment about well, wait a minute. We have to talk about No, we don't have to talk about anything. <laughs> you, you have to get adjusted is really what it comes down to. But we want to be, as Paul said, the good neighbors we always have been. So approach us in a respectful way and we can determine how we dis- discuss it. That's my interpretation. Anybody else thinks it's differently, you can send me an email about it. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Uh, let's have some good news in in Maine. Women in politics, winning, 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 winning in all of these seats. And uh, uh, the first uh, female governor, Janet Mills, has a very full cabinet of women, Arnie.
4: I I think I'm in love. Let me just say right now, I love Governor Janet Mills. Every time I hear her open her mouth for the most part, I'm like, oh, my God, it's not even refreshing. It's so – she's inspiring everyone. So she had over 1,000 applications for her cabinet positions because she really wanted the best and brightest to bring in. Of course, she's trying to rehabilitate after Governor LePage, and it probably wouldn't even take much. But anyway, she had 1,000 applications. Of that 1,000, she chose eight women out of her cabinet. to uh, Eight people are turning out to be women out of her cabinet, of which seven are men, eight are women. And for the first time ever, she has a woman agriculture and conservation and forestry uh, cabinet member and someone from fisheries and wildlife. So she didn't, she said, I did not, I was blind. I looked at these thousand applications. It turns out that they were so overwhelming, they were so remarkable. But eight of my cabinet members are now women. That is incredibly exciting. And then, of course, what you also see is if you take a look at the Maine legislature, you You have over 60 women in the Maine legislature. You have 12 more in the Senate. You now have the highest number ever in Maine history for the number of women. And I'm going to go back to, you know, what Donald Trump was to women in Congress, LePage was to women in Maine. People weren't waiting to be asked. People ran. People suddenly realized, you know what, the time has come. I keep thinking that maybe it's not me. But you know what? A lot of women realized it was me. And it really is quite exciting and she has she's role modeled i think the best of leadership and she hasn't put a female exclamation point on it. But just her presence has really been an invitation to say, you can serve too. And I think the story of Maine is really kind of the story of the country. But I want to remind everyone that that story isn't a 50-50 split. Despite the fact that women got the vote in 1920, I think we still represent about 25% of most legislatures in the United States. Maine may be up around 29%. But clearly, since we actually exercise the franchise more often than men and represent maybe a bigger percentage by a very tiny amount, it would be nice to see more women participating in aspects of leadership. And uh, Maine is actually leading the way in a wonderful, wonderful per- way. What else can I say? I'm very happy.
0: Uh, with respect to my male colleagues, I think it's a fabulous way to end this on <laughs> in, in, in celebration of Women's History Month. So thank you it's <laughs> all for joining it's me today. <laughs> <laughs> thank LePage. <laughs> Arnie Arneson is the host of The Attitude with Arnie Arneson. Philip Isle is a Providence-based freelance journalist and Paul Protovo is the executive editor of the Cape Cod Times. Coming up, Bourbon barrels are making a splash in the wine scene. French food is back big time. And what is vegan wine anyway? Our food and wine contributors give us the latest culinary scoops. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call lanyap That's Creole for something extra. Women winemakers are an even bigger force in wine industry today, and we're highlighting women-made wines in honor of this Women's History Month. The Japanese have reinvented an American breakfast favorite, pancakes, and is the sun setting on cheap wine. Here to dish out the hottest food and wine fads, Amy Traverso, food editor at Yankee Magazine, co-host of WGBH's Weekends with Yankee, and author of The Apple Lover's Cookbook. Hi, Amy. Hey, Callie. And Jonathan Alsop, founder and executive director of the Boston Wine School and author of The Wine Lover's Devotional. Hello, Jonathan. Hello, Callie. Uh, I want to start where every wonderful, delicious breakfast could start, and that's with croissants, which I... Won't be eating because of the caloric. (laughs) But anyway, the point is that croissants, brioche, we're familiar with that now here in America. But you're saying that French food in a wider way is coming back big time. It is the hot new
1: food category on the Boston restaurant scene right now. And it it really had a lull. I mean, Boston has always been a town that loved Italian food. And then Anna Sorton kind of got us onto this, you know, Eastern Mediterranean, Middle Eastern kick. Um, but French is so back right now. There's Bar Leon just opened and there's Frenchie in the South End, which has been open for a bit. But it just opened a sister restaurant called Colette. Um, Bistro du Midi's been around for a while, but it's just kind of been revitalized. The original chef has returned. Um, there's just a lot of energy. There's Daniel Balud's restaurant, which has been again for a few years. But you know, it's sort of you 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 need that sort of gravitational or that uh, mat that mass to critical mass is the word I was trying to think of, um, and it is hitting now. And so you know, some of the restaurants are definitely more modern, even a little bit of you know. Um, sort of molecular gastronomy, but a lot of them are doing great renditions of just classic French favorites. You know, your duck, your beautifully prepared duck, and your charcuterie, and all that stuff. So, you know, I, I'm happy because it, it seemed odd to me that a city of Boston size mm. didn't have more great French restaurants. And we lost Les Paliers, which yes. is a big yeah, loss. Yeah, that was huge. Yeah, yeah but we've gained uh, a more casual set of French restaurants.
0: And is our relationship with French food, meaning our Americans more we embracing now because we used to say, eh, you know, Julia Child didn't like that. Too much butter. Right, <laughs> yeah. right. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think
1: probably for a lot of the diet trends right now i mean people who are doing keto you know you can work around a keto diet in a french restaurant and you're going to be happy you know if you're eating the right like <laughs> pâtés and steaks with butter you're going to be really happy so it's actually pretty if you leave the bread basket behind and yes. keep away from the potatoes you can have a really nice meal Yeah, good luck yeah um, as so, opposed to italian which is
0: harder and uh, Final question about this, and that is, are millennials trending toward French food? Because I I could see other... Folks, you know, outside of that generation, that say, "Oh, yes, I remember, and it's delicious." Um, yes. What's better than a frit? But, yeah. but I don't, I don't know about millennials. Well,
1: I kind of see a parallel. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I would say yes, and I would see the parallel with millennials and wine drinking. Mm. I think, mm. I think there's an interest in the sort of adult pleasures of you know French food, delicious wine, but you see the millennial influence in that these are not white tablecloth formal mm. restaurants. Okay. These are you know bistros. These are not you know restaurants. Okay, yeah. Yeah. and and, right. and
3: a lot of these places are doing you know in the classical traditional French style multiple tiny courses yes not tapas but you know almost in that style so I can really see that it even though it's a very traditional cuisine maybe very traditional wines it's also got a modern uh, modern appeal too
0: um, well, it sounds like that what they won't be sipping with those traditional <laughs> small plates is cheap wine. <laughs> it's going away, you say, Jonathan. Well, you know something.
3: <laughs> something happened this week. Constellation Brands, which consumers probably do not know, this company it is it is one of the largest wine producer, wine importing companies in the world. Um, in the USA, it's bigger than its next two or three competitors combined yeah. uh, last week the COO of constellation brands announced that they were essentially uh, lopping off all of their under $11 brands this Why? is this is 40% of um, this is 40% of their uh, brands. Why? Well, their uh, explanation is that there's not a lot of money in cheap wine, and that for the them. money for them, <laughs> <Yeah>. right? <laughs> and, that, and, and that and that and um, that and that their profits uh, tend to come more from. Uh, the other sixty percent of their brands, they're somewhat higher, higher end lines, um, and so they are keeping. Um, this is a company that pro- that that produces Mundavi wines. They are keeping, you know, the under eleven dollar Mundavi Woodbridge line, but they're essentially jettisoning the rest of their lower end brands. And when a company like this does that. Um, it's it's a uh, it's repercussions across the entire wine industry i think you're still going to find you're still going to find your 2 buck chuck mm-hmm. or i think today it's 3 buck chuck <laughs> you know you're still going to find those but i think it is going to get harder and harder to find that really killer beloved 8.99 9.99 Ten ninety nine uh, bottle of wine.
0: Well, that mean when you say the industry, mm. is that not because they're just so big, but because others will copy them, sort of like the airlines? Well, others, yeah. uh,
3: others will others will copy them, mm-hmm. and also, you know, if this is their decision making process, you know, their. The implication is they're going to be ahead of the power curve. Mm-hmm. And so they're seeing this trend, lower profitability in lower end wines. And it's almost certain, it's almost certain to ripple out uh, to the rest of the industry. And this was quite a shock. Yeah, this, no, was a, it's, it this was sounds, a real shock to, yeah. the, to the wine industry.
0: Well, one, well, one last question about this, mm. and that is what we've been saying and the reason that wine prices have been uh, <clears throat> depressed, meaning mm-hmm. good for consumers, is that there's been so much wine. Yes. So that, that impact will not mitigate what they're doing?
3: Well, so mm-hmm. a, a few years ago, there was a huge um, glut of wine on the market, and a lot of other emerging markets are actually siphoning that off. China, India. Africa, you know these are uh, these are places where their wine consumption is growing astronomically. So that big glut that we had a few years ago, um, that's not really mm. that's not really happening mm. anymore. Mm-hmm. And you're starting to see people react. You're starting to see people react to that, and um, the the ground is shifting under our feet. No um, kidding. Especially that's... if you're a bargain wine lover like. But it, also, it, it
0: also encourages people to try different things when it's, yes. when you don't, you know, it's so much is not risked on a very expensive bottle mm-hmm. or something. So, yes. So, I mean, it does have repercussions. Yeah, so. Indeed. Um. Now, yeah, you're going around the world with food today, uh, Amy, so the Japanese are shaking up breakfast for us with uh, Japanese pancakes.
1: Yes. So in my neighborhood, Coolidge Corner of Brookline, there's a great uh, restaurant, Gensuen, which is a the first American outpost of a Japanese company. Their basic uh, organizational principles is a cuisine based on matcha, green tea. But there is a big trend happening in Japan that has hit the west coast and is finally making its way east which are these souffle pancakes um now i love pancakes but what i don't love is i eat pancakes and then i need to take a nap because they're just <laughs> so these have like an eggier uh batter and they're made they're they're you know an inch and a half thick or an mm. inch thick um they're inc- they have that that souffle like texture and they're made by basically taking uh, whipping egg whites separately and keeping them very cold and then gently folding them back in and cooking them low and slow so they sort of rise as they cook. Um, the only place that's really doing the true Japanese-style pancakes is Gensuen um, mm. in Brookline. Mm. But I expect that because this is such a fun, Instagrammable trend, mm-hmm. um, we're going to start seeing it in more places. Yeah. Um, so, But they're they're worth seeking out because it's a fun, lighter, um, less less sort of stupefying version of a breakfast favorite. And at, they're served with, with um, berries and a, sort of a matcha custard. So that'll give you a little kick too.
0: Now, interesting, I was taught uh, by Southern cooks that the way you make pancakes is to separate the eggs yes. anyway. Yes. So why is this lighter and fluffier? Because if you do that, Traditionally, you get a lighter painting.
1: It is. So this is just taking that to an extra degree, a little more of it. And then that, that chilling of the, the super cold whites just really helps with the rise. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I like to make them that way, too, because mm-hmm. they are so much better and so much lighter. This is just all that much more.
0: Oh, interesting. All right. It's Women's History Month. And we're celebrating women and wine, women yes. who make the wine, mm-hmm. Jonathan. And I know you have a list, and we're going to put that on our website later. But what, just give us a little bit of, of uh, some of the names that we should know.
3: Well, um, mm-hmm. first of all, there are, are today a ton of women who are not just winemakers, but... Um, Executive winemakers hmm. still underrepresented hmm. in the industry, but that is slowly but surely changing. Um, when I think about um, women, super talented women who make great wine, I think about um, Helen Morrison. Uh, she's the winemaker at Villa Maria in New Zealand. I mean, this is a, I mean this is a winery that makes a Billion bottles of wine a mm-hmm. year. They're absolutely huge. Uh, we were talking before about Krista Scruggs up in Vermont. Um, she's I just a...
0: discovered her. Black woman what? in Vermont. Fantastic. Okay.
3: <laughs> Fantastic. From Zafa, Z-A-F-A, uh, wines. Um, very uh, uh, ultra-natural, ultra-organic winemaking. She also makes cider. She forages. Hmm. She forages apples, apples in the woods and dropped fruit. To make this stuff. And um, I love the motto of the winery is just effing fermented juice. Right? That's (laughs) their motto. Uh, Stephanie Jacobs, Mm -hmm. she's the winemaker at Cake Bread Cellars Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. Napa, uh, which is one of the one of the most desired, most collectible, highest end of the Napa wines. And my favorite, my personal favorite winemaker is a woman named Andine Chatan. Hmm. And she is fantastic, spectacular French-sounding name. She is American. <laughs> and she is the head winemaker at Geyser Peak.
0: Oh, I love that. And she yeah. also makes
3: her own wine called XY Zin. And not only is she the head winemaker, she has dozens of winemakers working for her. Wow! And I remember I met her years ago and I remember just sitting and chatting with her and I said, What's it like to be a woman in a male-dominated industry? She looked me right in the (laughs) eye. She said... When I'm in the room, it's never male-dominated.
5: <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm buying a bottle
0: yeah, of her and I, I just love that <laughs> attitude.
3: And, um, and, again, great, great wine.
0: Oh, wonderful. Oh, I love it. This is so great. I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm here with our culinary gurus, Amy Traverso and Jonathan Alsop. We're discussing the latest tasty trends in food and wine. All right. Uh, back to you, Amy. Mm-hmm. Um, The next-gen gastropub. Now, this is interesting because I've been seeing that, and I didn't know it was a trend. Yeah, Yeah. it's it's kind
1: of a (laughs) new one, but I'm really excited about it because it's opening up a category for Boston diners that hasn't existed before, and I think they'll enjoy it. So— When we think about bar food, we start with the classic bar food of terrible chicken wings and a (laughs) pint of beer, right? And that that lasted for a really long time. Mm -hmm. And then we had the sort of gastropub trend come, you know, in the past 10 years. And the Spotted Pig Mm -hmm. and Boston has a lot of great gastropubs. Well, the new... Sort of drinking and dining trend is this kind of it's it's like a it's a very grown up sophisticated snack bar so it's a bar that has great drinks really ambitious cocktail program um, and modern takes on very American bar snacks um, so specifically I'm thinking of Fool's errand which mm-hmm. is Tiffany Faison um is you know they, they're they're doing cro- croquettes which are actually French but okay mm. and you know gussied up fried mac and cheese balls um, and then there's a new place called Longfellow bar mm. Um which is from the same team that, you know, Alden and Harlow and Waypoint mm-hmm. and Michael Scalfo. Um, and I was just there. It's a beautiful space above Alden and Harlow in the old uh, Casab, not cafe Casa, yeah. Like, yeah, Cafe yes. Algears. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. in Harvest um, uh-huh. uh, Beautiful. And they really preserve some of the nicest architectural mm-hmm. features of that building. Um, and they're doing these really fun international takes on... Bar food, so there's uh, crab rangoon nachos, but they're, they It sounds weird, but they're very, very good. Okay. Um, there's incredible. There's like an amazing take on deviled eggs. Um, mm. We had never so, gets old. Yeah, and so it's sort of American <laughs> tapas in that yeah. you're snacking and you're eating salty things, and it's making you thirsty, and you're drinking. The vibe is relaxed and fun. The service is really welcoming, and I just I like this. It's like let's go grab a drink and something good to eat. I don't mm. want a whole meal. Maybe we have plans. Maybe we're going to see a movie. We don't want to like sit down for three courses, but we can still feel like we're grown ups having a grown up
3: experience. Well, and and you better great. and you better not want to sit down if you go oh, right. to full no because yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, they got no chairs. That's right. That's has right. a few yes. a a seats yeah. at the
1: bar and it has a few dibs, People were standing, and the food's all meant to be eaten with your hands, so you mm. don't need to sit down. Yeah. Right.
0: Well, I like I like a new take on uh, on bar food. I would be remiss if talking about chicken wings if I did not mention slades in the south end. <laughs> I will take a knife and stab you
3: for those chicken wings. They're so
0: good. <laughs> All right, but that's a whole other vibe. Right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, moving on. Uh, Jonathan, what's in our glasses here?
3: Yes. So, um, <laughs> so in honor of um, International Women's uh, Day last week mm. and International Women's Month this week, I've brought red wine from Tuscany. Uh, this is a wine called Selva Scura. Selva means uh, like forest or woods scuda is like our word obscure so the name of this dark wine lights. is dark woods mm. or hidden forest and this is made by the Strozzi family in Tuscany and they are they have a couple of claims to fame one is they used to employ Machiavelli
0: oh wow he was
3: their secretary mm. and the Strozzi family is directly descended from uh, La Gioconda, hmm. whom we call Mona Lisa, Oh. and cool. so I thought that was a that was a really nice connection. Uh, a number of the women in the Strozzi family are also are also uh, winemakers. Oh, wonderful! And um, one of the things I love about this wine, I mean, you tell me you tell me what 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 you're tasting, mm. but. You know, we make wine so we can transport it. Yeah. So we can take it from place to place. We can transport the calories across the dimension of time. Uh, but the magic, the magical thing is that also wine transports us. Yes. And this is a wine where I feel like, I mean, I can really, I can I can smell the woods. I can smell the farm. Um, it's really a wine that takes you back to the place that it is. Came from, and so hard to explain. What is the mechanism? How does that? How does that happen biochemically? I don't know that anyone uh, really knows, but that's one of the beautiful, just one of the beautiful, compelling things about wine. And um, I feel like this wine uh, really does that.
0: The name will be on our Facebook page mm-hmm. uh, on the web, and it's eighteen ninety nine, and it's quite delicious. Mm-hmm. I must say, really and good. it's not heavy. Which I really right. enjoy too. So that means you could have a little bit more of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, one of the things that it's it's not that you didn't mention, but I w- want to make sure that we talk about is that there is now a lot of wines being aged in bourbon barrels. Yes. Um, this is not one of those. But right. why why bourbon? We know wood barrels, but why bourbon barrels? This uh,
3: I mean, this is an incredible explosive trend, especially in, in U.S. wine, um, uh, which is to which is to u- to take used bourbon barrels. And then age wine in them, so you get that, you get a little bit bit of that residual whiskey tone. You get a lot of those those intense charred wood flavors that we get um, uh, in bourbon. And this is a trend that is just absolutely exploding. Um, you know, Mondavi makes a uh, you know bourbon barrel aged Cabernet. Three years ago, they sold zero cases. Three years later, it's a million-plus cases. And it's just absolutely explosive trend. You know, Gallo is into it. Um, In in Australia, Jacob's Creek um, ages a Shiraz in a used Scotch barrel. And they also do Cabernet in Irish uh, whiskey barrels.
0: Are they more expensive?
3: Uh, you know, they are maybe a tiny bit more expensive, but, you know, the Mondavi, the, the bourbon barrel-aged Cabernet is maybe, you know, $16, 17 it's, it's It doesn't seem to be really elevating the price point, but it's, um, I, mean, I mean, I think this is a, a, a further sign of the convergence that we're seeing in the whole spirits market. A hundred years ago, when I started writing about wine, you know, Wine was up here, beer was down here, whiskey was over here, punching somebody in the head unexpectedly. (laughs) You know, these were very, uh, very separate, very separate sort of uh, products. And now we're really seeing a convergence of all of these things. People who are, you know, people who are into craft beer, they're open to interesting, Mm. you know, whiskeys. People Mm. who are into whiskey, they're open to interesting wine. And and so, even though um, Vine Pear had an article a couple of weeks ago, uh, the title was uh, "Bourbon Barrel-Aged Wine Isn't Real Wine," but that's okay. Oh. <laughs> and um, I just, I just think that this is um, a sign of this kind of this convergence, and just just new people, new hmm. wine lovers, new food lovers, new spirits lovers, really getting into the whole uh, wine world and losing that hmm. distinction. In some ways, between between all of these things,
0: um, that's interesting, uh, Amy. I'm fascinated by this. is This wine is light, as we've discussed, and now you're talking about these meats, these hot meats that are <laughs> a little intense. They are. So
1: the one in that this there's one I have sort of a personal thing in this. There's a meat that is really big now. It's it's a it's a salume. It's um, salami. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's uh, mortadella, which many people, do you know? I mean, yes. most people um, know what yeah. it is, right? But it was sort of, it, it was not hot until yeah. recently. And um, and this makes me happy because that's how it's something I happen to have grown up on. Um, you know, many Italians, I think, who grow, Italian-Americans probably grew up with it. So if you don't know it, it's this pistachio-studded pork-based meat. It has a very silky texture. And it is the meat that Deli bologna is sort of based on, and that's because it comes from Bologna in Italy. So Bologna bologna, um, but real mortadella is is more carefully made. It has delicious chunks of fat and little bits of fat that you can still kind of see in in the in the in the paste. Um, and it's showing up on a lot of menus uh, as sort of a hot thing. It's in stuffed pastas yeah. at SRV and Italy. In fact, Italy sells uh, a delicious stuffed Agnolati, that you can just buy at the pasta mm. counter. Mm. With oh my god, the mortadella is what makes it. It is so good. It has this rich. It's I think it's the most umami intensive meat I've mm. ever tasted. It's so good for at bar Mitzan It is fried, and then there's a whole restaurant called Mortadella Head in oh. uh, Davis, which Davis Square in Somerville. Which Mortadella Head is sort of a. A friendly insult that <laughs> Italian Americans <laughs> use to call each other dummy. Yeah. Um, but but this is sort of a pizza and sandwich place, but they they put a lot of mortadella in their sandwiches. Um, and then there's n- n- injuja, which is um, uh, it, it's a paste. It's sort of a pate. It's a it's a spreadable. Mm. Uh, pate that's spicy. It's from mm. Calabria. It has chilies in it, um, and that is another one that it's it's heavy and, and you know and but it a little goes a long way. A little bit in a dish with say octopus as it's served um, at Bar Mitzvah and Julia. Um, it's paired with sea urchin at Uni, uh, so it kind of crosses the line into Japanese fare. Um, and it's in a duck dish that Karen Okonowicz is serving at Fox and the Knife. So, um, you know, they're, 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 you can eat a small amount. It packs a big flavor punch. And it's nice to see these kind of slightly lesser-known things coming to the fore.
0: Um, I, I, it, it reminds me earlier, we were talking about uh, diets Sort of reframing people's tastes, and I'm wondering because there are a lot of meat-centric diets now, so yes. this may have brought more yes. interest in meat, right?
1: I think there. Mm-hmm. I think you know we had a long period where mm-hmm. we were we thought that fat and salt were the enemies. Salt, obviously, too much salt is not good for anybody. But if you're controlling other factors in your diet like sugar, then your body can certainly thrive eating a higher fat diet. Mm. Yeah, yeah.
0: Thank you both for joining me. Thanks, Callie. Thank you, Callie. Amy Traverso is the food editor at Yankee Magazine, co-host of WGBH's Weekends with Yankee and author of the Apple Lovers Cookbook. And Jonathan Aussip is the founder and executive director of the Boston Wine School and author of the Wine Lovers Devotional. That's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at wgbh.org news. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Cali Crossley. And like us at Facebook.com slash Under the Radar WGBH. Our engineer is Doug Sugars. Francisca Monahan is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.